Good morning, everyone. Well, my friends, certainly write our elected officials and tell them to stop with the time change because now it's messing with the people of God. <laughs> Even so much so, we, one of our deacons is missing. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. <laughs> my friends, Our first reading from the book of Deuteronomy, when you study it, describes an ancient religious rite composed of two ceremonies. The Israelites offered their first fruits to God uh, while they recited a creed, if you will. The offering of uh, first fruits and the accompanying prayer uh, were joyful expressions of gratitude to God. The first fruits were sacred to God, and thus they were to be consecrated to Him. The first fruits represented, so you know, the entire harvest, which the Israelites considered as belonging to God. Everything belonged to Him, the land, everything was His. Now, this is the important piece too the first fruits were to Him, and the rest of the harvest was to be used by the people by the Israelites, and thus they considered it to be a gift from God. The accompanying prayer, or creed as I put it, uh, was both an account of Israel's history, and it also, if you go back and read it, is an expression of gratitude to God. Mass. Our celebration of Mass is a thanksgiving offered to God, as it were, uh, to do it, and we are to do it in a spirit of gratitude also. As a matter of fact, the word Eucharist comes from Eucharistine, meaning thanksgiving, to give thanks. In the Mass, we offer to God the first fruits of salvation, who is Christ. Now, of course, Christ needed no redemption as he was without sin. But as St. Paul says, Christ is now raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ then, gloriously, risen from the dead, is offered at the Mass. He is offered as the first fruit because he was the first to rise in a perfect resurrection body, and soul. And in his resurrection, the promise of our resurrection when we are faithful is made. And as a matter of fact, it is the cause of our rising from the dead, as St. Paul will say, if he has not, neither are we, and our faith is then in vain. Thus, in union with Christ, we offer God the Mass in gratitude for all that we have received, eternal life. God, to nourish our souls, now gives us holy communion, the very gift we have offered to him, his son, Jesus the Christ. We rejoice thus for all that God has done free from slavery and sin to Satan. And my friends, he continues to do this 
meaning continues to pour out his grace upon us by the wonder of his love and by the sign of his son perpetuated in the mass. This requires faith to understand. The second reading has St. Paul describing the very nature of faith for us. The act of faith is to believe in your heart and to confess with your lips Jesus as Lord. What you have to understand in the second reading, he is writing to that community because they are fighting with each other. The fight and the argument is about the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews who have become Christians and the Gentiles who have become Christians. And the Jews who have become Christians are telling them, first you have to become a Jew and then you can become a Christian. <laughs> so that means you have to observe all the dietary laws and you have to do other things. This is why St. Paul says, first you must profess with your lips and in your heart belief in Jesus Christ. He said, that's the foundation. So, St. Paul, describing the nature of faith, the act of faith, is to believe in your heart and confess with your lips Jesus as the Lord. Both things, when you take all of the Pauline works, the body of Paul, everything he's written, I don't mean his body, body, and all the writings of Paul, both things you discover when you read all of his writings, both things give external expression to one's faith in the Word of God by one's manner of living. Faith was necessary for salvation of the Israelites. That's what the first reading is getting at. They were to be faithful and true to God as God was always faithful to them. And in that faithfulness, Israel was secure and they could rest securely in God. Faith is required for the salvation of every Christian. The Christian is to accept the very word of God. The Christian is to accept that Jesus is Lord and the source of sanctification, period. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no others. We are to believe that through his paschal mystery, the Christian is delivered from sin and has a new life in Christ. I'm referring to baptism. Faith then necessarily must have works with it. Big fan of St. James because <laughs> he's a big proponent of this. So my friends, express externally faith by confession of the lips. Do you know what that really means? Prayer. Prayer. The disciple is to pray. And faith is expressed in the motive that prompts your every daily activity. Getting up, doing the dishes, making breakfast, making lunch, taking care of the kids, going to work, getting stuck in traffic, and not being mean-spirited. You get, you get my point, right? I know it's early in the morning, but you're getting my point. 
Faith is expressed in the very motives that prompts your every activity. Faith is also at the center of the gospel today. Our gospel becomes difficult for many of us uh, because we are told that the Lord is subjected to temptation. Though he was without sin, our Lord permitted being subjected to temptation to give us an example of how we, as children of God, are to act even in the midst of temptation. Temptation is not sin. If it were, we could not say Jesus without sin, right? Temptation, sin is the problem. Temptation is like the flu. We have to put up with it. <laughs> but there's remedies for it, right? Just as the doctor will give you Tamiflu. There's remedies for temptation. Fasting, prayer, almsgiving, walking in holiness. Regarding our Lord, these temptations were directed at the human nature of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is fully divine and fully human. So Satan is aware of this. So he is directing the temptations, I know it's hard for us, at Jesus, at his human nature. In doing so, they become very real temptations. They become very powerful because I've heard Christians say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. Those temptations weren't real. Oh, shame on you, Christian, for saying that. Because that will eventually lead you to saying that that really didn't hurt. It was all show. You see, Jesus in his human nature, those temptations were very real and very powerful. Satan, who is very clever, knows this. So he directs the temptations at the human peace of Jesus. The nature of the temptations then, the first one was to appeal to the human need for food. A very simple thing. And he wants Jesus to use his power. You see, to put forth another way of looking at it, another way to understand it is Satan wraps it in something that seems very plausible and understandable. It is good to eat when you are hungry, Jesus. Use your power and turn those stones into bread. You see, he wants them to not depend on God, his Father. Satan is appealing to the human need to feed when we are hungry. The second temptation appeals to the human desire for wealth and power and superiority. You can almost hear Satan put it another way. It is good to have authority and power, Jesus of Nazareth, because with that you can bring about change. Doesn't your father want change? Hmm? Satan was appealing to the notion of humans who always want superiority. And the third temptation was intended to stimulate ostentatious pride and conceit. It is good to be protected against danger, is it not, Jesus of Nazareth? Throw yourself off the cliff. 
and let us test your father. You see? But it is good that he protects you, right? You see how he wraps it? In conquering these temptations, Christ taught us how to live as children of God. His example is to be our way of living. He conformed himself to the will of the Heavenly Father. Christ did not act rashly. Christ prayed all the time. Christ acted for the welfare of God's kingdom on earth rather than for his own purposes. You see, that's what Satan was trying to do to him. Here, here, do this. Your father will be happy no matter what. We are to follow the example of Christ in times of temptation also. We can pray asking God for help. We are to remember our dignity as children of God and refuse to degrade ourselves by giving in to the temptation. We are to work for the kingdom of God here on earth. The example of Christ teaches us not to satisfy our selfish instincts that lead us into sin, or, if you will, makes us succumb to the temptation. And friends, the truth of the matter is each of us experience temptation. This fact should not give us undue stress, and it should not make you in despair. I hear this all the time as a priest who is in the confessional. Father, I'm tempted all the time, and it makes me in despair. My brother, my sister, you are going to have temptation until you enter heaven. <laughs> Get out of the despair. You have been given a spirit of courage. Our Lord Jesus was tempted, and he gave us the example of how to conquer temptation and Satan. Following the example of Christ, we can say in Christ, get lost, Satan, <laughs> or be gone, as Jesus said, be gone, Satan. Jesus overcame the temptations, and this is absolutely crucial, and this is something that I continue to try. Jesus overcame the temptations because he had the power and the knowledge of sacred scripture. And he will. You will overcome temptation and the devil if you also will have the power and knowledge of sacred scripture. This is why I preach so long and teach based in the scripture. So you will come to know those passages and that you will have power and knowledge and that you will be assured in your relationship with the Father. And friends, there's growing up in Detroit and being around folks who sing gospel is a beautiful. If I had been really smart, I would have had the choir ready to sing it. Blessed Assurance. Beautiful hymn with the, a truth that is sung that would just slam dunk my homily if we had it <laughs> for another time. My friends, St. Augustine, I want to kind of end on a funny note. St. Augustine said that since the coming of Christ, the devil 
is a chained power. He's on a leash. He compares the devil to a dog tied to a post. For him to truly reach us, meaning Satan, we have to step into his territory. So St. Augustine would tell you, don't do it. Stay out of his territory. In other words, he would put forth, humans like to tempt temptation. They like to play with fire. And you, you all know what happens when you play with fire. Eventually, you're going to get burned. People always walk to the very end. I'll have the strength to pull back. I always put it this way. When you're on a diet, you're trying to lose weight, don't go to the bakery. <laughs> you're not going to be able to resist. Just stay away. I believe this is what St. Augustine is getting at. And my friends, our psalm, I want to close with the two pieces of scripture, the psalm that the cantor is saying, a responsorial. Know this, believe it, and live it. Because the person clings to me, I will deliver him. Because he knows my name, I will set him on high. And the other one comes from Second Chronicles 7. Heard your prayer for my house of sacrifice and pardon their sins and heal their land. Now therefore my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayers of this place. Now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart shall be there always. I apply that to St. Nicholas of Tolentino Parish in Gig Harbor. Have faith. Have strength. My friends, whenever I make an error, I correct it. And a couple months ago, two people came and said, Father, I'm going to go to two Masses. May I receive the Eucharist? And I said, you cannot. My professors in the seminary uh, taught me about Canon 917. And the understanding that they put forth to me was that uh, a person can only receive the Eucharist once in a day. Unless they're at another Mass and they happen to be serving, like... The sacristan, he'll be at two masses, he receives. He came back again on Ash Wednesday when two parishioners said, we're going to go to both masses. Very holy people. <laughs> Father, may we have the Eucharist. And at first I said no. But then I felt uncomfortable about something. So I said, you know what, just receive it and, um, until I tell you otherwise. So I contacted our canon lawyers here, the lawyer, and they work for the archbishop. And I'm going to read the email that they sent to me. Dearest Father Mark, thank you for your question about reception of the Eucharist in accord with Canon 917. The generally accepted understanding of this canon is 21, Article 2 is a reference to it. 
which allows for the reception of viaticum even if one has already reached 17 code. <laughs> no wonder I don't understand anything. Uh, the change to the 1917 code was meant to encourage full participation at Mass and should be seen in a positive light. The fact that there is even a canon limiting reception to twice a day is to protect against superstition and the habit of going from church to church simply for the purpose of receiving communion, as some used to do in centuries past. We hope our response is helpful to you. Easy for me to blame my professor. <laughs> but I'm not going to, because that is not what a holy pastor does. What a holy pastor does is accepts the fact that he was in error publicly corrected my error, huh? <laughs> and I will be writing a letter to my canon lawyer professor, <laughs> thanking him for giving me the opportunity to apologize to my people. <laughs> my friends, this puts forth having knowledge of sacred scriptures and our teachings and precepts. 